hope you're doing well this morning. Glad that you come out to worship. I know some of you are uh, with us as we are celebrating uh, the graduation uh, for our high school students. And if you're visiting with us for that purpose, uh, glad that you're here. Uh, if you don't have a, a church home here in the community, we definitely uh, invite you to come back and be a part of uh, uh, our worship and be a part of what God is doing uh, here in our midst. If you have your Bible this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, and I'm going to begin reading this morning in verse 27. I invite you this morning uh, to stand with us in reverence to God's Word. The Bible says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you're the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of the Father with his holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. You may be seated. If you're visiting with us, we have been uh, walking through Mark's gospel. And last week we looked at verses 22 through 26. And I joked with someone who is a part of our curriculum team that writes our literature for Sunday morning Bible studies. I joke with him that I picked five verses last week, and it was difficult to get very many points from those five verses because it was a theme that we had saw multiple times as we've been journeying through Mark, and it's only five verses. And then for some reason, when I planned this out uh, 18 or 12 months ago or so, I set apart this entire text, which we could take weeks, if not months on, for one Sunday. So I don't know why exactly, I don't remember, it's been a long time, I've slept a couple times since then, and not exactly sure what caused me to do this, other than I believe that God has led us to this text together this morning, and it is one that is very instructive for us on the way that we should live as Christians. Because we have here two very important truths about the Son of God, and then we have from these important truths the way that we should then live in light of the truth that God has revealed to us in His Word. Peter says one thing about Jesus. Jesus says a thing about Himself. And then He tells this larger group, this larger crowd, how they should live in light of this truth. And I would think for us this morning that we should be open and willing and ready to listen to the things that God has said to us in His Word, especially because when we look and see this generation that Jesus describes in verse 38, it sounds much like our own. When He says in verse 38, this adulterous and sinful generation, He is not talking specifically or exclusively about those who would commit the sin of adultery, but rather, as we think about in the Old Testament, when the people of God would leave their first love, God, and they would go out and have relationship with other gods. They would cheat on God. They would abandon Him. 
They would follow after other teachings and other ways of thinking. They would follow after other religious expressions. And friends, that's where we are today in our generation, in our time, in our culture. We have seen this great leaving of God, this great abandoning of God to follow after the false gods of this world. And so, I think he is speaking specifically to us. We found ourselves in this adulterous and sinful generation. But God is gracious to us in that He gives us the information that we need, the instructions that we so desperately need, how that we should live in this generation. But let's begin at looking at that Peter gives, this confession that is found in all four Gospels, and there is very little that is found in all four, but this confession is, as a matter of fact, if we look in Matthew and we look in John, we see that when he says, you are the Christ, he says, the Son of the living God, the Son of God. It's expanded even further by those Gospel authors. Jesus comes to his disciples to get their opinion, if you will. They've been with him for a while now. What are they going to understand? What are they going to know? What have they developed? What what has come to their mind about him and their relationship with him since they have been his disciples? And so he comes to them, and he, 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 we're sitting in this group, if you will. They're standing around talking. He says, I want to ask you a question. Who do people say that I am? We need to understand that at this point, Jesus has reached rock star status in his culture. Everywhere that he went, we read everywhere that he went, these huge crowds came to to listen to him and to hear him teach and to to follow him and to to bring someone to be healed. They they wanted to have this, this relationship or at least this closeness with Jesus. But he knew that everyone who stood there and, and, and saw him perform a miracle or listened to him teach, not everyone walked away with the same opinion. And so the disciples would have been aware of this opinion. Who do people say that I am? It's an extremely important question. Because Jesus, while he has many titles, he is but one person. And he, he, he can't be just one title to one person and one title to this person. People need to realize the importance of this this description that Peter places on Jesus. Because when he asks about these crowds, who do they say that I am? They give him a myriad of responses. Well, you're John the Baptist. We know from before that there were people who believed the Baptist who had been murdered, somehow he's come back to life in Jesus. Others say Elijah. Elijah, the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. The one who we're going to see next week there with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. We have him mentioned here. Well, you're Elijah, obviously. You're, some of the people think you're Elijah. You've come back. As Elijah, and you're doing great things in or as Elijah. And others, you're just one of the prophets. Some people didn't think quite as highly of Jesus, apparently. You weren't Elijah, but you were one of the lesser known prophets or the lesser prophets of importance. We live in a culture that screams out answers when Jesus asks. Who am I? Who do people think I am? Our culture screams all kinds of answers. Go down to the bookstore this afternoon and you will find plenty of books on Jesus. But when you begin to read them, what's often so amazing is they very rarely reflect the Jesus that's described in the New Testament. People want Jesus to be anything and everything but what He is. And see, for the crowds to have answered in any other way than what they do here, you're John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the other prophets, would have meant taking this huge step of faith and ascribing something to Jesus that they had not ascribed to anyone before. 
They would have had to to place a title on Jesus that would have demanded their ultimate response. It would have demanded that they did something differently with their life than what they had been doing. And so apparently the people in the crowds had not taken that step yet to place that title on Jesus. But he knew, Jesus knew, that these disciples had been with him much longer than these crowds. And so he asked, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter, of course, is, as we read in the Gospels, is almost always the first one to speak up. He's kind of the spokesman for the disciples. And so he stands up and he says, I have the answer. He says, you are the Christ. Jesus says, who who do you think, who do you say that I am? Who do you tell people that I am? You are the Christ. Now, this is a big statement. It may not mean a whole lot to you. We, We know that we call Jesus Christ. A lot of people probably think that's just his last name. It's not exactly the way that worked in the New Testament. Not the way it worked in the Old Testament, but hey. I guarantee you, if you went and polled a lot of Americans, they would just assume that Christ is Jesus' last name. But it's not. It's a title that the Bible has placed upon him. It's a title that right here in this verse, Peter places upon Jesus. You're the Christ. In other words, you're the Messiah. You're the one waiting on. You're the one who this nation and this people are desperate for. You're the one who we have been praying for and crying out for. You're the one who the Old Testament has promised us would come and deliver us from our oppressors, that would come and deliver us from sin, that would usher in a great kingdom, a kingdom of God. All of that and infinitely more is contained in this word. You're the Christ. You're the one we've been waiting on. While I understand and know that this is the answer that Jesus knew Peter would give, I still wonder if it didn't warm his heart. Because you look at the struggles that they've been through, you look at this answer that they give, this convoluted answer. You're John the Baptist, even though Jesus was ministering while John the Baptist was still alive, but but apparently he's the resurrected John the Baptist. Well, you're Elijah, and that's a great title to have, but it's not the title that Jesus came with. You're another prophet. You're not even as good as Elijah. All of these answers, and yet... His disciples, who he's invested all this time in, even though they've got it wrong, even though if you go back and look, they they missed all of the signs, they had missed the miracles, they had missed what he was teaching often. He comes to this, the important question, the biggest question so far in the New Testament, the biggest question in the Gospel of Mark, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you're the Christ. He could have went on to say, we don't have all this figured out. We don't know what we're doing. We, we don't understand everything that's going on, but you're the Christ. Peter's going to mess it up just a few verses later. He's going to have missed it a few verses later. Jesus begins to get deeper in his teaching, and Peter is not there yet, but here he gets it right. And friends, I wonder for you who you think Jesus is. Who do you say that he is? Well, Jesus Christ. I knew his last name. I fixed that for you this morning if you thought incorrectly about that. Who do you think Jesus is? See, friends, we demonstrate that not in what we say because the disciples will ultimately be called upon not to demonstrate it in what they say but in how they live. Oh, it's important that they say it correctly It's important that they say the right thing, but it becomes of ultimate importance that they not only say the right thing, but live the right way. Because Jesus is about to teach them the difficult way of living if you are a follower of Christ. 
the difficult path you must trot if you're going to follow after Jesus. So I wonder, with your words in your life, who do you say that Jesus is? Because I think too often my words and my heart reflect him in a different manner than Peter expresses him right here. I think my actions and my words often reveal him to be someone different than the Christ. If we were to look at Matthew and John, the son of the living God. Do my words and actions reflect Jesus as the Christ? I don't know that Peter understood that when he said so. But if you flip over to the book of Acts and you begin to read through at the rest of Peter's life, what you see is a man who believed that Jesus was the Christ. And for him, that made all the difference. But Jesus doesn't leave us with just Peter's confession. Because Peter has, and many of the people in Jesus' day had, a wrong impression of what the Christ would be. You see, basically, the people of Israel at this point are living under a light form of slavery. They have been conquered by Rome. They are oppressed by Rome. Their rights are in Rome's hands. And one of the things that they wanted most is they longed for the Christ was the one who would come and deliver them from the hands of their oppressor. They believed that there would be an earthly king who would sit on an earthly throne. And friends, they're not wrong about that. They just missed the timing of it. And that's what Jesus' disciples expected. They were going to sit at the right hand and the left hand of the new king of Israel. They were going to rule and reign with him. He was going to kick the Romans out. And they were going to be the ones who were then in charge. They were going to get to be his right-hand men. But Jesus goes into telling them something that is completely against the idea that they had for him as the Messiah. Look with me at the next verses. Verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. He didn't talk in circles. He didn't use symbols. He didn't use uh, imagery. He spoke very plainly. By the way, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed. And I'm going to rise again. Now, friends, that is against all the ideas that Peter and his disciple, other disciples had in their mind when they stand in front of Jesus and they say, you're the Christ. Peter has a confession, you are the Christ, but Jesus adds to that and points out to them that the Christ must suffer. Yes, Jesus is the Christ, but Jesus says, I am the suffering Son of Man. The Son of Man must suffer many things. The Christ suffered. Friends, there is a movement among many who still want to hold on to the title of being a Christian, but they want to remove all the tough things out of the Bible. They want to take all the, the tough and difficult words out of the Bible. They want to take the, the tough teachings out of the Bible. They want to sugarcoat them. They want to make them more palatable for 2015. Well, friends, that effort has been going on since the beginning. Because that's exactly what Peter does here. Now think about this. Peter, who is Peter? He's a nobody. He's a fisherman. He, he's, he's of little value in the whole scheme of the world, at least at this point. He's nobody important. He's talking to the Christ, the Son of the living God. And look what it says, verse 32. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. It's a pretty bold move on Peter's part, don't you think? 
Remember, Jesus at a couple different points has gotten really famous, and Peter has really tried to push that and, and urge him to do that. And yeah, yeah, you're going to be you're going to be a big guy. You're going to be a rock star, whatever. And every time Jesus has pulled back and said, "That's that's not my purpose." And so here he said he's going to die. Now that doesn't work in the plan. That doesn't work in the plan of the disciples. You're going to be the Christ. You're going to kick the Romans out. You're going to take over. And we're going to be in charge. And so he rebukes him. Peter rebukes Jesus. You can't say that. This has not been vetted. Our polling data says that this is not the type of comments you should be making to the public. We can't let you say this. You're saying in a small group now, what if you go out and say it in front of the whole crowd? What's going to happen then? Jesus, you can't say these things. You don't know what you're talking about. And so Jesus turns to his disciples. Jesus makes sure his disciples are there. He doesn't pull Peter aside. He doesn't pull Peter out of the way and have a private conversation and straighten Peter out. He wants to make sure everybody else hears this when he says, Get behind me, Satan. For you're setting your mind on the things of God Not on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, every time that we decide we're going to step back and rewrite Jesus, we're going to rewrite his script a little bit. We're going to clean up that ending part where he dies on a tree. You know, it's bloody and gory and messy and, and, and the disciples and everyone looks defeated and Jesus looks powerless. We need to, we need to clean this up a little bit. We need to fix this a little bit. Friends, you and I need to see that the beauty of the gospel is not only that Jesus is the Christ, but he is the one that suffers in our place. It does you no good, it does me no good, if Jesus comes as the conquering Christ, but does not deal with our sin in his death. Peter didn't know that. Peter missed that. Peter had no clue what was going on. Peter Peter didn't see the bigger scheme. As a matter of fact, Jesus tells him that. You're not thinking about the things of God. God has sent me to deal with your sin. God has sent me to deal with death. You're wanting me to take over some little little piece of the world over in the Middle East, a a little desert place. You're wanting me to take that over so that you can have power in this world. But I have come to take over the world and to give you infinite and total power in it. I've come to buy you back from death. I've come to redeem you from your sin. But you're thinking about this strip of land in the Middle East. You're thinking about how great it would be if I had a throne here, was able to set myself up here, how great it would be. Friends, we we see rewrites of Jesus all the time. We see rewrites. We want to improve the Bible. I always love it when, when they come out on the news and they found a new book of the Bible. You see this all the time, right? And it's, it's very interesting because they'll find these books and they're written hundreds of years after Jesus lived. I mean, sometimes two and three hundred years after Jesus lived. And yet, they're supposedly more authoritative than... for. The Gospel of Mark, for instance, written about 20 to 30 years after Jesus lived. So let me get this straight. If George Washington wrote a book about the American Revolution within 30 years after it happened, and it was, you had a copy of it, and then today, I wrote a first-hand account of the American Revolution. Me. Mine would be more authoritative. That's the amount of time that's passed, right? 1776, 225, 240, 39 years ago, something like that. Do you think my book would be more authoritative as a first-hand account of the American Revolution? I mean, I paid pretty good attention in U.S. history when I was in high school. I really enjoyed it. Had a great teacher. Don't know that I'm qualified to write first-hand accounts of the things that happened. How ludicrous. 
And yet, if you go online, you go to one of the major news networks, you go and do a Google search, what you're going to find are are new papers all the time, new books all the time. These are authoritative. The gospel of this and the gospel of that. And Jesus did this, and he was married to this person. And he had this kid, and, and Judas did this. And it's, it's, it's garbage. What it is is the devil trying to convince you and trying to convince the world that the authority of the Word of God is not true. Trying to convince you that Jesus was somebody that he wasn't. It blows my mind the number of scholars who live in 2015 and believe they have better knowledge about the things of Jesus than the people that walked with him. The people that heard him speak. And most importantly, as Paul talked in his letter to the Corinthians, the people that stood there and watched him walk around after he had been dead for three days. Not just one person or two people, but many people witnessed Jesus after he had been raised from the dead. And yet people today think they can rewrite Jesus and somehow make him better. Make him easier to understand. Make him friendlier. Make him demand less of them. Friends, he is the Christ. The Christ who suffered and died on your behalf. He died in your place so that you could have life. He died in your place so that you did not have to taste death as he did, so that he could take the punishment that was coming to you from God because you are sinful and he took it upon himself so that you never had to experience that punishment and wrath that God, in his justice, will send you without Christ. So how are they to live? How are they to live after hearing that he is the Christ and he is the suffering and anything less is a message from Satan, how are they to live? Well, he says, therefore, which is always our transition or normally our transition in the Bible into telling us how we should respond to what God has taught us. Therefore, This is how we should live. Look at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them. So think about this. He, now, he says these things to the, the disciples. They didn't really like hearing the part about him suffering and dying. So now he brings the whole crowd together, and he says something far more radical than what he has said in the previous verses. He says three things as these therefore. First, deny yourself. So if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Well, that's a biggie. Who is thinking about when he tells Jesus or rebukes Jesus? Who's he thinking about when he pulls Jesus aside and, and rebukes him? He, he wags that finger in his face. You can't say that. Don't be telling people that. He's thinking about himself. Friends, our biggest impediment to getting to God, our biggest impediment to our relationship with God is ourself. We like to blame everything else. We like to blame everyone else. Well, I've heard this excuse. You've heard this excuse. I work five days during the week. I need two days for my weekend. I can't come to church on Sunday. I've got to have that day free. I, I don't have time to follow after God. My life is, is busy. I don't, have, I don't have the money to give to God. My finances are tight. I don't have this ability or that ability. I don't have this gift or that gift. I can't do this. I can't do that. My, my boss won't let me off work on Sunday, so I, I can't follow after God. My, my children take up all of my time, so I can't follow after God. Friends, our biggest impediment to God is our inability to deny ourselves. To tell ourselves no so that we can do what God has called us to do. This is a silly example, but it was meaningful to me last night. I wore a pair of, of pants Friday or Saturday that, that fit, that hadn't fit in a while, and I was very happy about that. I, it was just a fluke, I'm sure, but I was glad about it. Hadn't done anything in particular to try to make these pants fit, but they just they fit. So I was getting ready to go to bed last night, and I walked through the kitchen, and I was talking to Rachel. I already had a shower and brushed my teeth. And up on the top of the shelf, there was this huge box that she had just purchased of fudge rounds. Now, fudge rounds are awesome. 
I haven't had breakfast this morning. I really could use a fudge round right now. But I said, you know, I've already brushed my teeth, so I'm not going to eat that fudge round. And I went on to bed. I was proud of myself. It's a, it's a small thing, but some of you that like sweets, you understand. That's a big deal. Somebody's going to pat me on the back afterwards. Man, I couldn't have did that. That's a great story, Pastor. You've encouraged me. But that's what it is. That's our impediment to following after God. We see these little things that we want, and we know God is calling us to do something. We know God is calling us to follow Him and go in the direction He's called us to go. But we look back up, and there's something on the shelf that we like, and our attention is diverted to that. We grab whatever it is. We do whatever it is. We go in whatever direction we want because it's something we want to do. It's something we want, something that will make us comfortable, and we deny Christ instead of denying ourselves. Friends, we do it all the time. the biggest impediment to coming to Christ. Now look, here's the second one, and if you can get past the denying yourself part, here's where most people fall off. He says, take up his cross. Now you've probably heard this preached, and it was the most garbage sermon ever, because this text right here is messed up maybe more than any other. Taking up your cross is not getting up at 9 o'clock to come to church on Sunday morning. You don't bear an extra cross because we start early. As a matter of fact, we get better seating at the restaurant, so that's totally canceled. It's totally wiped out. But friends, there's people that think that, getting, that, that picking up their cross is getting to church at 9 o'clock on a Sunday morning. Friends, that pastor better be wary of standing in judgment of the God that's described in this Bible. If you say that. Friends, that cross, this is prettied up, the one we've got back here. But this cross is an instrument of torture and death. It's not the little gold necklace you wear around your neck. Taking up your cross is is not sticking five bucks in when we take up a missions offering. Jesus is telling them here, and listen, you've seen the context. I didn't take it out of context to make it pretty for you. The context is he said, I'm going to die. And now he goes out to the crowds and he says, and if you want to follow me, you're going to have to be ready to follow me in death. In other words, carrying your cross In whatever you're doing to die for what God's called you to do. See that puffy, fluffy sermon that just messes this text all up? It will, it'll play in America. But go to places around the world where people die for their faith. Go to these places in Africa where the Islamic extremists are coming into schools and killing everyone that's a Christian. Go to them in chapel at that school where all those Christians have died and, and tell them, well, taking up your cross is a few extra dollars in the offering plate or getting up early to go to church. Hope that in that sermon that you preach to those people that your ignorance of the text is lost in the translation. Because if not, they're never going to believe another word you say. Why would Jesus say he's going to die and then tell them that their cross was going to be an easy and light thing? And after you take up the cross, look, he says the third thing, you're going to deny yourself, take up your cross, and he says, follow me. With your cross in hand, with that instrument of torture and death in hand, then follow him. See, most people want to follow Jesus when it's easy. They want to follow Jesus when it's convenient. They want to follow Jesus only if your service is at 11 or only if it's a special holiday or only if you make it easy for them or only if the temperature is exactly right in the sanctuary or only if you don't ask too much of them or ask them to volunteer or ask for their money or whatever. They only want to follow Jesus when it's convenient for them. But Jesus says you're going to have to deny yourself 
Forget about your desires and your wants. You're going to pick up this instrument of torture and death, and you're going to follow after me. Let me promise you, if you go to the fastest growing churches in our country, this text is going to be glazed over. Why? Because that doesn't impress people much. If you go to the Gospel of John and you see where Jesus talks about his death, what happens afterwards? There's a falling away. People leave. They say, this is too difficult. This is too hard. That's the way it's supposed to be. Why would it be easy for us when it wasn't easy for him? Follow me. Why? Well, here's the four reasons why. We'll close with these reasons. They come from the rest of the verses in this chapter. He starts each section with the word for. The first and last are a statement. The second and third are a question. He wants to provoke the thought of the people. Why should they deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him? Look, verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. How interesting it is that we often spend our lives trying to save our own life. We concentrate on all the things of this world about living longer, about living in a more happy manner, about having more materialism, about having more wealth. That's what we spend our time concentrating on. We spend our time concentrating on saving our own life. And yet if you go and read the stories of the greatest missionaries in the history of the church, most of them died younger than I am. Now think about that. I'm younger than most of you. And most of the great missionaries who they have been books written about who started great revolutions in evangelism overseas died younger than I am. If we spend our life attempting to save our life, we will lose it. But he says the opposite is also true. If we spend our life losing our life for his sake and the sake of the gospel, we will save it. Friends, that's a mentality shift from what we're accustomed to. It's a shift in our way of thinking. If we spend our entire life trying to save our life, trying to make ourselves live longer and more prosperous, we're going to, in the end, lose our life. The rich young ruler who came to Jesus had everything, and he said, listen, sell it all and follow me, because that's what's most important. And the rich young man left, and he was sad, because he had a lot of stuff. He had a lot of stuff piled in his closets at home. He had a lot of money in his bank account. And so he left sad because he couldn't give all that up to follow Christ. If you try to save your life, you will lose it. But if you try to give it away, if you try to lose your life, you'll save it. Now look, verse 36 and 37, he asked two questions. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And what can a man give in return for his soul? So in life, if we gain the whole world, we gain everything, we gain all the material possessions, we gain all the wealth and all the fame and all the prosperity, and we die, you can't take it with you. If you put it all in your coffin, when they stick you in the ground, somebody's going to come by and dig it up and take all your stuff. You could have a gold casket driven by a gold hearse, Put you in a gold vault with a gold headstone. It's not going to matter. You're dead. And the man who works his whole life to have that will in the end lose his life. And then what happens? You die. And in the second question here, so you're standing before God. What do you have now that you can exchange for your soul? All the things that you've gained in this world, all the stuff that you've come into, what can you then take with it and trade it in for your soul? Are you going to stand there at the gate and go, listen, God, I've got all these gold bars? Well, the joke with that is that that's what they use for pavement in heaven. It's really not that valuable. They take your gold bars and they pave the streets and you still can't get in. And he asks a final question. Or it makes a final statement. For whoever, 
is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angel. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And here, for whoever would be ashamed, God will be ashamed of him. It blows my mind the number of people who want to be called Christians while at the same time being ashamed of Jesus. They, they, they want to be they just they want to be Christians. They want to have that label on there. They've always had it. Their grandparents had it. Their parents had it. They always went to this church or that church. But they want to be ashamed of Jesus at the same time. Well, Jesus was just an uncultured carpenter from 2,000 years ago. He didn't really know. There's a professor that once taught at the seminary, at Southeastern Seminary, and they no longer do, but I hear that one time... This particular theologian said that Jesus was just simply unaware of some of the higher criticism, some of the the more in-depth study that have come along since him. That's why Jesus said some of the things he said. He was just ignorant. He just didn't know any better. She wanted to be a Christian, this theologian, while at the same time being ashamed of Jesus. Friends, that's not how it works. It's easy. It's easy here on Sunday morning. We, we sang a couple of songs. They're ones that you're familiar with. We've, we've sung them before. We'll sing a song here to close in, in just a few minutes. And it's easy to stand up and, and sing those songs. It's, it's easy to come to church and get dressed up on Sunday morning. And you might even go into our life application group time. And you'll answer a couple questions because you know them or there's something on your mind. You just wanted to, to share it. But friends, that's not, that's not what he's talking about. When you walk out of this place and someone believes it's dumb, as they increasingly do in our culture, to, to be a Christian is dumb, to, to go to church is dumb, to believe these things. It's, it's dumb to believe that a man could be raised again from the dead. You're just not that smart or not that educated if you, if you believe that sort of thing. That's when we have the opportunity to not be ashamed of Christ. That's when we have the opportunity. Even if we disagree with someone, even if we do so gently to say, listen, that's fine, but this is what I believe. Christ is my Savior. Christ is the one who has delivered me out of the domain of darkness and transferred me into his marvelous light. Christ is the one who died in my place. I, it's fine, you can believe that, that's, that's your choice, but, but this is what I believe, and I'm not ashamed of that. Paul said he wasn't ashamed of the gospel. Why? It had power. See, the truth of the matter is, the people in this world who deny Christ, who want to change Christ, who want to make him into something else, it's because they're desperate. They're searching for something. They've got a hole in their life, and they cannot fill it, and they, they, they try to mold and shape and, and change Jesus so that they can move on from him. Because every time they're confronted with Christ, every time they're confronted with Jesus, it, it reminds them of their sinfulness. It reminds them of the hole that they have. It reminds them that they need something, and they look at our life, and the very thing they want The very thing they desire is the very thing that we have in Jesus. And friends, when we stand boldly, denying ourselves, willing to go and follow Jesus, no matter what the circumstances are, denying the things of this world that are not important, that's when we're not ashamed of Christ. It's when we're not ashamed of him and he does something amazing in our life. It's when we're not ashamed of him and he reaches people's hearts and minds. Because, see, I, I love what he says here. He doesn't just say ashamed of, of him. Or rather, he doesn't just talk about in verse 35 about losing your life for his sake, but he says also for the gospels, for the good news. See, not only for him do we not only serve him, but we serve to do what he's called us to do, to take this message of of hope, this message of peace that we have been given, this gospel, this good news, and share it with a world that is hurting. 
We can't just say, okay, we love, we love God, but not also be firmly planted in, in sharing His good news, firmly committed to sharing His message with other people. We do this because He is the Christ. We do this because He has suffered and died in our place. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the suffering Son of Man who came to give us life. And I wonder, I wonder how often we show that we are not ashamed of Him. So he closes this section of chapter 9, verse 1. He said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. He promised them that they would not die. Some of them standing there would not die until they saw the kingdom of God. And they didn't. It wasn't very long after this that Christ died. And on the third day, just like he had promised in chapter 8, he rose again. And by his resurrection and the giving of the Holy Spirit, these people who, who had rebuked him, this Peter who had rebuked him, stood boldly in Acts chapter 2 and proclaimed his message. Because the kingdom had come. The kingdom had been inaugurated. They were able to see the power of the kingdom. Friends, you and I live in that. We shouldn't think about the kingdom of God being something that's far off, something that we have no participation in. But he calls us now not to be ashamed of him, not to be ashamed of his kingdom, not to be ashamed of his coming. This is how we should live if we believe that he is the Christ. This is how we should live if we believe that he has died in our place. Friends, we live in a world that is hurting, an adulterous and sinful generation, a generation that has abandoned God. You look up and down the age brackets, you look up and down the economic brackets, the racial brackets, whatever you want to look at, the people of our culture have abandoned God. But we must stand firmly in this adulterous and sinful generation. Stand firmly unashamed of the gospel of Christ. Because, friends, we understand that it still has the power to save. The power that was there and available in Acts chapter 2 is still here and available to us. We have the authority to share the good news, the authority to promise people that if they turn from their sin, God will save them from their sin. He will save them from death. He will bring them into His kingdom. But if we're ashamed of the gospel, then we have no power. We have no authority. We have no ability. Friends, we must stand unashamed of the gospel of Christ. Unashamed where you work, unashamed where you go to school, unashamed with your family, unashamed of what Christ has done for us in coming as our King and dying in our place and giving us life when we had nothing, nothing to exchange for our soul. Will you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have called us as your children, that you have given us hope, life, peace. God, we thank you that you've brought us here this morning. God, that we could come together and worship. We could come together and sing praises and hear your word proclaimed, we could come together and rejoice in all that you've done. But God, I pray that when you send us out, God, that our focus will not be on trying to save our life. God, our focus would be on following you. God, our focus would be on the things that has come. God, our focus would be on losing our life, on giving our life away so that others may hear the good news. God, I pray that we stand unashamed of your gospel. 
We know, God, that it is powerful. God, it has the power to transform hearts and lives. And God, you have given us the responsibility to share the good news of what you have done with the world around us. God, I pray. God, I pray desperately that you would help us all to stand unashamed of your gospel. God, you would help us. You would help us to see the lostness and the hurt around us. You would help us to see those who are hurting and in despair. And God, you would give us a heart that was focused on living a life for you and for the sake of the gospel. God, I pray that you move in hearts and minds during this time. God, convict us where we have been deficient. God, convict us where we have been ashamed. God, convict us where we have spent our time trying to save our life. God, show us your grace and peace. God, lead us to where you would have us to go. God, help us to deny ourselves, to pick up that cross, and to follow you. And God, I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I invite you to stand with me as we're going to sing. This morning, if you have no relationship with Christ, you didn't even know that, that He had died for you. You didn't realize that that was the reason that He had went to the cross. That was the reason He died is so that you could have a right relationship with God. Friends, I would love to share with you this morning how you can know Him. If you had come, I would love to do that. But most of you in this room know Christ. And so I wonder if our priority is on saving our life or if it's losing it. If our priority is, is to maintain our relationship with other people and be in good standing with them or to be unashamed of the gospel of Christ. I think God has spoken to us about that this morning. And if you have areas in your life that you need to deal with, I would like to pray with you. You can pray here at the altar. You can come and respond to what God has called us to do. You listen to Him and what He has spoken to us in His Word as we sing this morning.